Coming up, we hear from Steve Preston, the CEO of Goodwill, about his career in private and public service and the ways he sought to follow his faith and his calling. Right after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan, your host and on staff at Upper House. Before jumping into briefly describing upcoming conversation. I want to celebrate that this is our 50th episode of the Upwards podcast. We began back in November of 2020, and here we are uh, almost a year and a half later with many, many delightful and insightful conversations and interviews under our belt. Like Upper House itself, the Upwards podcast has been wide-ranging in the topics it touches on, We started with our first episode with historian Darren Dochuk, and we've moved to so many other topics from art to theology and science and spiritual practices and many more. We've had conversations about leadership, including the one you'll hear today, the creative process, the practice of lament, the writing process, morality during wartime. Tying all of these various and varied topics and guests together has been a constant desire to learn from scholars and experts and leaders about how to think better about the complex world around us. And as Upper House's tagline goes, to explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul, and particularly to enrich our university, our community, and the church. So uh, with that, uh, we hope you've enjoyed these 50 episodes if you've been here for the whole ride or for just part of it and look forward to bringing you many more episodes of the podcast. The guest today on our episode is named Steve Preston, who has a fascinating and distinguished career in the private sector and as a public servant. And finally, as a leader of a nonprofit organization today that, and that is goodwill. This conversation weaves its way through Steve's own backstory and the big stages he's had the opportunity to work on, and the conversations hosted by John, our executive director at Upper House, who's known Steve for over 20 years. Together, they explore, using Steve's biography as the basis, a compelling set of life stories as an example of how God enables people to make unexpected career decisions and discernment and uh, and 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 sort of seeing uh, where God's calling them uh, in the service of that higher calling. So a bit more about Steve Preston. He's the president and CEO of Goodwill Industries International, and that's a federation of local organizations. Most of us know it, uh, Goodwill by its retail stores, but it is a much bigger organization that includes job, job training and, and other things uh, and ultimately has over 125,000 employees. Earlier in his career, uh, Steve headed two federal agencies during times of national crisis, 
the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and the Small Business Administration. He's also served as the CEO of two private corporations and as the CFO of two Fortune 500 companies. Steve graduated from Northwestern University and holds an MBA from the University of Chicago, and he actually grew up in Janesville, Wisconsin, so he's very close to us here in Madison. We find it such a joy to host people like Steve Preston who can speak to a number of the audiences and communities that we want to serve here in Madison. And that includes the business community and the nonprofit community and the university community. And these are all areas in which Steve's work has intersected. So with that, excited to bring you an upwards conversation with John Terrell and Steve Preston. Well, Steve, welcome uh, to Upper House. It's been a joy to have you here the last couple of days. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun uh, meeting people here and engaging with them. We, we've kept you busy for sure. Um, really looking forward to this conversation, this this podcast, and I know our listening community is going to really enjoy this time with you. I'd like to start chronologically. Um, I'd like to go way back. Um, tell me, tell us about your your time growing up, um, what was the context? Um, what were some of the values and or important lessons that were instilled in you as a child? Yeah, so I grew up uh, here in Wisconsin. I grew up in, uh, you know, probably a typical American blue-collar town. Both of my parents grew up in a very different place. My father grew up, uh, he was the ninth of 11 children, uh, born in a coal mining camp in Appalachia. Uh, lived in a little four-room shack with his family that had uh, no plumbing, no heating, no electricity, and um, and they were very poor. You know, when he was uh, finishing up ninth grade, he really left that area and went to work in the foundries in Dayton, uh, where he thought he would find a better life and ultimately went into the military. Uh, my mother grew up also in a very challenging but very different context uh, in Germany. She was born in 1930, was a child during the, the rise of National Socialism, and Saw sort of the horrors of that and then went through uh, sort of the terrifying years of the war. She grew up in a city that was um, almost entirely destroyed and then experienced post-war poverty and hunger. And those two came together and they raised five kids uh, in Janesville, Wisconsin. So we uh, certainly did not experience what they did. Uh, We never wanted for a meal. Uh, I would say things were very tight financially. But it was sort of a, a community where, you know, my friends hadn't got, parents hadn't gone to college. You know, the expectations were very different. And so we always knew that we had it better than our parents. And so that was great. The other thing I guess I would say uh, is my parents were both completely committed to the children. They wanted, uh, they wanted us to have a better life than they had. They were committed to making our lives better. Uh, and it was very clear that they just had a deep love for us. Uh, even though they weren't reading a lot of books on parenting, let's say. <laughs> it sort of took it as it came. It came naturally. It came. It just came the way it came. Yeah, okay. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. I look back at those times, and what I remember is just just the conviction that they loved us and cared for us and were always there for us. At one point, you moved from Janesville to the South, right? Do I have that part of your story right? We did. We yeah. moved to Florida for a couple of years. That's right. And what was that experience like? Well, it was quite shocking in a lot of ways. I grew up in a, a very homogeneous community. You know, it was, I remember, you know, some kid at school asking me if I was Catholic or Lutheran and wondering, gosh, there's got to be more than that. This is Janesville. <laughs> this was in Janesville yeah, right, when right. I was growing up. And I went to, um, we moved to Florida where my dad um, uh, had an opportunity uh, and it was um, shockingly racist. 
and we had never it was just something we had never confronted before and never understood. People were uh, overtly racist in what they said. Um, I had, uh, you know, I had two older brothers and I had stitches and had to go to the uh, doctor to get, or I had a cut and had to go to the doctor to get stitches once, which wasn't unusual. And we walked in and um, my mother went to the counter to uh, register and the woman said, uh, ma'am, could you go out the door and go down the hall and go into the next room? And we looked around us, uh, and there were no white people in the waiting room. Uh, so we went down the hall, and we went into the white uh, waiting room. And I don't know that I've ever seen my mother more angry before. And uh, and she, both of my parents, you know, uh, had a temper. And what I realized was she had seen injustices growing up in Germany that lived deeply within her. Yeah. When she saw something like that that was unfair, uh, it, it, it just burdened her. And I remember all the way home, even as an eight-year-old, her telling me what, like how terrible that was and how fair it was and how we should not have been at the front of that line. Uh, and it really ingrained something within me, uh, you know, that was sort of this sense of, you know, right and wrong in that place. My father, likewise, you know, when he went into the – when he moved to Dayton to go into the foundry – most of the people that worked with him were African-American. And my father was somebody who loved everybody, connected with everybody, loved community, um, had great friendships there. And when we moved down there and he saw it, um, I remember him telling me, uh, telling all the children, um, look, this word that you keep hearing is not about race. It is about hatred. Um, and we have to understand what that means. Uh, also very upset uh, because of what we were in the middle of. And so on both sides, I had parents that had this sense of, you know, what was right in those places and what was wrong. And they sort of firmly and almost aggressively talked to us about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that th those values or what you saw modeled by your parents plays a role as you think about your vocational choices down the road. So it I, does. So yeah. both, both their backgrounds and their challenges and their sense of um, fairness in doing what was right. They had very little in the world materially, but they believed very strongly that what we had uh, was our integrity, uh, was our honesty, was being people of truth. And that's really what they taught us. They taught us, um, they taught us that, that, that we needed to be people who could be trusted, and, um, and that's what they ingrained in us very deeply. How did you get to Northwestern University, from Janesville to Northwestern? What, 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 what led to that? That pathway, or what opened up that pathway for you? I, I realized at one at some point in my my schooling that school was something that I was good at, and I didn't really understand that uh, before. And I and I realized also that if I invested myself in my education, that it may lead to better things than I had. Right? I I, I always had this view of like, <laughs> I, you know, I knew where I was, and I knew I wanted to be in a different place, and it was probably that simple. And so I invested heavily in, in, um, uh, in high school. I, I was very involved. Uh, I worked very hard to get good grades. I didn't really know where it was going to take me. Things went well, and I honestly got this postcard from Northwestern University that was sort of a recruiting thing. Um, I didn't know where to go to college. I didn't know anything about colleges. My guidance counselors weren't terribly helpful, and my parents didn't know anything. So I pulled out this Barron's Guide, and I looked at sort of the college rankings, and I said, well, this place I got this postcard from looks like a pretty good school. So I better go down and check it out. Uh, and my father had met somebody who's, who had a child at Northwestern, and, and he actually connected me with that person. And I went down to visit. Uh, I had an interview. I'll never forget the interviewer looked at me and said, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but you'll get in. 
Uh, for me, obviously, it was it was very important to get an aid package. Uh, they basically said, this is how much you, you need to make to go to college. This is how you're going to make it. Here are all the components. Uh, you're accepted, and we see a way to get you through here. And uh, I arrived on campus, and I, I did not know where I was. Uh, I did never met kids from those backgrounds before. Uh, I, I hadn't been clued into the way people dressed. Uh, I'll never forget going home with a good friend of mine, and you know uh, we were eating breakfast on China, and I like I'd never seen anybody eating on China before. <laughs> they had a tea service behind some glass. I, I, I you know, I was completely agog, and uh, uh, that sounds sort of pretty basic now in life, but it was uh, it was an entry point into a completely different world of experience, uh, of access, uh, of education, and it it really is was sort of that big step forward uh, on a completely different journey for me in life. Yeah. I want to start to open up your faith journey. And I know there's an important moment in your own spiritual exploration that happens sometime in your primary or secondary education. Yeah. Could you yeah. could you walk us through that? Because I think it does, uh, it has an influence on how you think about college and, and your own potential, right? Well, it was huge. Um, my, I had two older brothers. I grew up in a family of five kids, and I had two older brothers. And what I would say is, you know, they were wild men, right? They were, <laughs> they were getting in trouble. They were down on a particular path, and I was, I was going to be right behind them. Uh, I knew a lot of things uh, as a 12-year-old that I don't think my kids knew until they got to college, probably. And so because I'd, I'd sort of grown up in a rough-and-tumble environment. And then the summer that I would turn 13 – I visited uh, some relatives who were people of deep faith, and uh, it was during that summer uh, that I came to faith. And I just remember realizing somehow that I was different now, and that I and that I was I was holding on to a different hope, uh, and I was looking forward to a different pathway. And when I went home to Wisconsin, you know, even as a twelve turning thirteen year old, completely changed the path that I was on very intentionally. Uh, I found a church on my own. Uh, uh, my dad agreed to take me to church, and then I found another family to take me to church. <clears throat> and I really feel like during those high school years, my faith and my faith journey anchored me in a way that protected me, that kept me focused on what could be in life, uh, and that sought meaning in a very different place than what I might have otherwise. And you found political science, right, in, in college? Yeah, well, that's that's partially because I was a weird kid, right? You know, I I I can remember as an eight year old watching the election returns and uh, alone in the living room, believe it or not. And as I got into um, high school, I became very interested in public policy, and uh, I remember listening to political commentators on the radio to understand um, different political views, and it took me to a bigger world. Uh, in a bigger world of issues that I was hungry to understand, uh, and that I, I just I just really um, love engaging in. So I went to college as a poli sci major. I had a specialty in international politics, um, and I never changed it. I loved it. I got you know I I uh, I did research. I you know I I I studied overseas during the you know during the Cold War in Germany, where I was right sort of on the the battlefront of international politics. Um, and I really thought I thought that I would go to graduate school for public policy and go to work for an NGO. Um, and uh, so it was ironic that many years later I ended up in the federal government. Yeah, you can see how these threads begin to 
come together. You you don't do that though, right after college. You you actually go on to University of Chicago, right, for an MBA. Yep, I go on to a finance MBA. And so what happened was, you know, sometimes our pathways are not fully intended. Uh, I remember thinking as I was applying for jobs coming out of college that I was going to apply to a bunch of MBA programs, defer the best school, work for a couple of years, and then maybe actually apply to public policy school. And if that didn't work out, stick with the MBA. I kind of gave myself a few options. But the one thing I knew I didn't want to do is go into banking because it looked completely boring to me and I didn't want anything to do with it. Well, long story short, uh, I got an offer from the First National Bank of Chicago, which was one of the predecessor uh, banks for J.P. Morgan today. Uh, they put me in a rotational training program, uh, and I went into a pro- this, this training program where we also went to University of Chicago for our MBAs at night. I fell in love with finance. It was fascinating to me. I was somebody who – my real talents at the time uh, were much more in sort of uh, you know math and quantitative areas, but I loved sort of these you know uh, humanities and political science and qualitative areas. And for me, finance was this way of um, a quantitatively complex world that was very connected with what was happening in the broader world. And putting those two things together to me uh, was fascinating. Um, It was exciting. And it was just a a tremendous opportunity for professional growth. So I went to finish University of Chicago. And then after that, I went to work for one of the large Wall Street firms. Talk about those Wall Street years. I think you spent three – you were three years in New York City? No, I was, no, I was uh, uh, you know, almost 10 years. 10 years. Talk, talk mm-hmm. about that time. It was a rough and tumble time because it was it was Wall Street in the 80s, you know, and uh, it was sort of like getting on a Bronco and riding it. The ethics were very different. Um, it was sort of a larger than life world. The, uh, the world of investment banking was beginning to explode. And as a person of faith, uh, I, I felt like I was consistently challenged to um, – you know, uh, to have integrity with respect to my principles, not that people were asking me to do the wrong thing, but it was more sort of the broader behaviors in New York and the finance world at the time. But I, at the same time, you know, I wanted to invest myself in continuing to learn and grow in an area that really fascinated me. And I loved, you know, I, I, I kind of lived this, you know, somewhat conflicted life for a number of years, um, loving what I was doing, but knowing that it was a tough, a tough place to be. And increasingly, what I did was become more invested in certain areas of serving the community. I spent every weekend with kids in some of the more difficult neighborhoods, mentoring them and tutoring themselves. I made a deal with myself early on where I said, I'm not going to do anything for money, for prestige or power. And I was in a world of money, prestige and power. I held firmly to those principles. So I fed myself in other ways at the same time that I said to myself, I've got to keep this sense of true north as I go forward because I can't become so beholden to this world that it kind of overtakes me. About a year or a year and a half before I was to make partner, which is really when, you know, that particular profession becomes extremely lucrative, uh, I decided to leave the firm and to uh, go to work for one of our clients in a senior financial role. And it was really because I wanted to learn how to be a different kind of leader, a more broader organizational leader, be part of building an organization. And the pathway of the banker was something that I felt increasingly was taking me away from what I was hoping to become in life. I'll never forget the partners of the firm kind of sat me down and said, like, do you really get what you're doing? Like, do you really understand? Like, now is not the way when you – at the time when you walk away from it. You've, you've been working toward this for so many years, and now you're, you're leaving right be- before the, you, know, you get the purse. 
And I, I remember just having this overwhelming sense of, but I'm not here for the purse. I, I'm on a different path in life, and, and now's the time to move. And it was an incredibly liberating move for me. I was getting married at about the same time, and it was it, it ended up becoming a big transition for me in life. Yeah. I want to transition into that time in business and business leadership uh, because the, the, the years get really interesting in that season. But I know while you were in New York City, you met your wife, and you were both really invested um, in Redeemer Church and yes. the early work of Tim Keller. I wonder if you could just speak to that briefly, the, the kind of formative role— that church and Tim played in your life? It was a wonderful place and a wonderful community, and he was such a rich teacher. Tim Keller came to New York, I believe, in 1989, and I started attending Redeemer in 1990. It was probably 150 or 200 people at the time, so everybody knew each other. And, and he had come into that community and really diagnosed the New York frame of mind which was people running very hard for achievement, you know, seeking very hard to win and, and to, uh, you know, to meet some elusive goal. And we had people in the arts and people in finance and people in other areas of business. And he realized how to bring grace to those areas and help people understand uh, the emptiness in a lot of those aspirations. And to... Uh, and, and, and I, you know, that sounds sort of negative to say, but to realize that, you know, all that glitters isn't gold. And certainly for me in the profession that I was in, I, I, I increasingly was, was, was building that conviction because I saw so many people who were sort of winning in the profession but losing in life. And so uh, it was a time when, you know, sitting under his teaching where I felt like I, I grew in my understanding of theology, I was able to connect it very much to where I was and who I was as a professional, and who I was is somebody who invested in uh, in the community and served other people in my volunteer efforts. And I, I felt like I came out of that period in life with a much more deeply integrated sense of who I was as a person of faith. And how that how that touched every aspect of every aspect of my life, and how it all had to work together for me as a whole person. You know, luckily I found a wonderful person to share life with who had very much the same philosophy. Uh, so the best thing was I found my wife there. <laughs> yeah. And I think I met you. I'm trying to think, I met you in the late mid to late nineties, I believe. At, at the time, you were the CFO, might have been the EVP of Service Master. I wonder if you could speak to the whole passage of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. A lot of our listeners will remember that. Um, this is probably, it's not your first crisis, um, but it certainly was something that was anxiety-provoking in the sense that you had to take personal responsibility for major new legal act, acts that were put in place that um, that brought potential punitive and criminal jeopardy to to CEOs and CFOs and, and senior executives. I wonder if you could talk about that period of time. Well, it was a period of time during which the integrity of companies' financial statements had begun to, you know, had begun to sort of wane, uh, you know, uh, for a number of years. I think the quality of those uh, financial statements uh, were such that increasingly companies were inflating their earnings and minimizing the risk that they had. And as a result, uh, over many years of this happening, uh, we got to a place where many there were many very large uh, corporate failures that investors really didn't understand because you know they had 
financial statements that had audit opinions and had been blessed by the accountants. And all of a sudden, you had places like WorldCom and Enron and other organizations, major corporations basically melting down. And those were sort of the big, massive reflections of the problem. But I would also tell you, having been a banker through those years and later as CFO, I believe that it was much, much more broadly endemic of the environment in sort of lesser ways, perhaps. And so I think a lot of companies had had begun to employ certain accounting practices that weren't really fully reflective of their of their performance. So during this period of time, one of the, um, you know, Congress became obviously very aware of the issue. They passed something called the Sarbanes-Oxley uh, Act, which significantly raised the bar uh, for accounting standards uh, in the expectations of auditors. Now, the other um, part of this is Arthur Anderson, which was, uh, you know, one of the most, if not the most prestigious accounting firm at the time, effectively disintegrated under allegations of misconduct. And the company, uh, you know, for whom I was the CFO, was an Arthur Anderson client. They were our accounting firm. So we had to switch accounting firms to another uh, large firm. And the firms that were coming in to take over the Anderson clients, in many cases, uh, were very rigorous and very unrelenting in their work. And we just happened to trigger this technicality that required us to do a three-year backward re-audit. So this new firm would come in and question all of our judgments for years. This was very public at the same time that the SEC announced that they were doing a review of our financial statements, which wasn't unusual, but it was a compounding factor. And all of this was going to be a multi-month process while while the investors waited to see what would happen, wondering whether or not, you know, you know, the new firm would opine whether our books were good and what it meant for the integrity of management. So it was a very stressful period of time, you know, one in which, uh, you know, as leader of the financial organization really required me to lead the organization through some very rocky waters. At some point along this journey, you begin to discern that a change is potentially coming. How does that unfold for you? And then how do you take that next step? What happens to, to, to kind of invite you into serving in, in the public realm? I've been developing an increasingly strong conviction uh, that I wanted to make a different kind of impact in life. And uh, once again, similar to when I left Lehman Brothers, probably it was an unlikely time to do that. I had five small children. Uh, everything in my career was going great. I was sort of in the succession line for the CEO um, but I just felt this overwhelmingly strong conviction that I had built these skills over 25 years in finance and in business, uh, and I wanted to deploy them in a way that may have had an impact on our world in a different way. And after a, a couple of years of just working very hard and discerning my path ahead, <clears throat> an opportunity came up to serve uh, in Washington. And a former colleague of mine who had gone to work in the, uh, the administration um, called me up one day and said, uh, look, the administration is is looking for people who can run operations. You know, the government is full of big businesses, effectively. There are a lot of policy experts. There are a lot of people who understand politics, but we don't have as many people as we need to run big organizations that have complicated problems. And I'm wondering if you'd ever talk to people here about, about coming into the administration. Now, remember, I had been a poli-sci major. I thought I was going to go to work for an NGO at some time, at some point in my life. I had been a sort of a, a student of policy my whole life, and all of a sudden, I see this opportunity to apply what I had learned in the business world in the um, 
in a government setting. And originally, they'd asked me to uh, interview for a job as, as, as an undersecretary in the Department of Commerce, which was kind of a, a large role, very interesting, intellectually very engaging, working on big, complicated issues, um, a little bit safe, not terribly in the public eye. And sort of, and through this process, I was sort of lulled into thinking, gosh, this is really going to be the right thing. It kind of, it feels right to me. And I'd been through all the background checks. I'd been vetted. And I was told that in about two weeks, they were going to announce my nomination to be this undersecretary in the Department of Commerce. And I got a call from my contact, the White House, who said, uh, are you sitting down? <laughs> which it's just never something you want to hear after they've just finished a bunch of background checks. Not that I could have thought what that might be. And he kind of chuckled a little bit and he said, um, we've got a position that is very important to the president and that we think is a higher calling, but it's going to be a very difficult role and we don't want you to do it unless you think you can. For me, I've, you know, throughout this period of time and throughout my life, I've thought of work as a calling. And so even the use of that phrase uh, really made me pay attention. And, and basically, the, the, you know, the, the role was to run the Small Business Administration. Of course, I thought, well, like, how hard can that be, right? You know, you know helping small businesses, this is, you know, it's motherhood and apple pie. And what turned out was the Small Business Administration actually makes loans to uh, disaster victims, both people who've lost their homes and people who've lost their businesses, and they make loans to help them rebuild their lives. And it was long after Hurricane Katrina, <clears throat> and most people hadn't gotten their money yet for their loans to rebuild. And when I came in, it was 10 months after the storm, and effectively I realized that the operations to make those loans had, had really collapsed, and the machinery of, 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 uh, of doing that was just not functional. And my job was to come in and figure out how to fix it, and deploy those funds to the individuals who needed to get their lives back. It was, I realized it was going to be an extremely public role. There was terrible press on the agency. Uh, congressional leaders were calling for my predecessor's resignation. The SBA had the lowest morale of any of the 31 large agencies in the federal government. And I had never been a public person. And I went from being very excited about the move forward to very unexcited. But I realized as a person of faith, I felt God had taken me to a point of saying, no, this is what I have for you. you. I've had you through this period of discernment for a long time. And now that I've gotten you here, like, I really want you to look at what I have for you. And um, I had this undeniable sense of like, this is something that I was, that I had to do. And um, I remember in church that week, our pastor was preaching on Exodus 33, and it was sort of a passage where Moses is kind of pushing back on his mission to, uh, with the Israelites. And he says, but God, you know, if I do this, you've got to go with me. You've got to teach me along the way. And he said, and show me your glory. And I thought, like, this isn't about self-interest. This is about um, following a true calling and seeking uh, seeking God on that pathway. And uh, And then I also took a step back and said, like, what does it say about who I am and who do I want to be? And uh, I remember thinking very consciously, you know, 30 or 40 years from now, when I look back at my life, do I want to be the person who played it safe and got the CEO promotion and built wealth 
and, you know, had this great life, uh, you know, materially and in my community and, 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 and potentially in some very significant ways. Um, or do I want to be the person who said, I'm going to risk it because I think this is where I was called to serve. And in doing so, um, potentially use all the skills I have and all the capabilities I have to make a difference for all these people. Yeah. And I couldn't, I couldn't say no. It just, I had this overwhelming sense of conviction that this is where I need to be. Yeah. And you'd learned a lesson, um, a few years before about leading with your heart alongside your head. I, how, how did the SBA and coming alongside Katrina storm victims, um, help yeah. you, help you, uh, implement some of those new, um, lessons that you were trying to incorporate? Yeah. So, you know, recall I, I'd been a banker, I'd been a CFO. Uh, later I moved into to an operational role, but I was very much of a left brain person, right? Uh, you use your brain in finance, you know, you're dealing with these complicated issues. Some of them are very technical. Uh, and that was really my sweet spot. And I was sort of being groomed for uh, bigger leadership roles. And I wanted that. But I realized I can remember being in settings with operational leaders where I observed them and thought, you know, I'm not sure that I know how to do that. I'm not sure that I can move out of this, this fairly, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, more technically based realm to a broader leadership capability. And so uh, our CEO had given all of the leadership um, uh, career coaches if we wanted them. And I had a great relationship with a guy who was working, helping me think through these issues. And then I went to uh, what I would call a pre-CEO boot camp called the uh, Center for Creative Leadership. Uh, they had a program called Leadership at the Peak. And both of those coaches kind of came to me with a very similar observation. And the articulation that I recall the most was one of them saying, Steve, you think you're the, the strongest arrow in your leadership quiver is your brain. And it's not. It's your heart. And unless you learn to invoke your heart as a leader, you will never realize your potential. Now, when I was at Lehman, the worst thing anybody could say to you is, like, you're not very smart. I mean, that, like, <laughs> it was all about being kind of, kind of the, you know, the smartest guy at the table or one of them or being able to figure out complex issues and moving into the, the CFO realm. It was not that, that different. And I went through a period of time of, of trying to understand that. Uh, and trying to understand who I was as a leader with that advice. And when I went to the Small Business Administration, every bit of me was called upon to be a leader. Um, I had these deep employee morale issues. I had this massive you know, operational breakdown. There were you know, tens of thousands, a couple hundred thousand people who needed help that couldn't get it because of the issue. There was a public, deep public taint on the industry, which was, was an embarrassment to our federal government. And I realized... In all of those places, I need to bring all of me to that place. I need to bring all of all. I need to bring all of myself to the, to my people. I need to bring all of myself to figuring out the operational issues, and 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 how all of these things come together to drive the organization and its mission forward. And there was, it was in that place that I really learned to invoke my heart as a leader. Uh, that I learned to 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 really tap into this sense of deep caring for every one of those constituencies, for deep caring for the impact we were having, for deep caring for the importance of our work. And, um, and I became a very different kind of leader because of the ability to engage all of who I was in all of those places. Another call came not too long thereafter from the White House 
and you eventually transitioned to um, HUD. I wonder if you could speak to that transition and what was your work there about? So uh, things had gone well at the SBA. Uh, it was a public disaster, so I had, it had a fair amount of exposure uh, both uh, through congressional hearings and in the media to those issues. Uh, there were a lot of issues with financial markets involved there. And there were a lot of issues with respect to working with Congress on various policy issues. And I think when the housing market blew up and the financial crisis hit, as a result, there were a lot of analogies to the work I had done at SBA and the work that I would need to do at HUD. And so as when I got the outreach, it was very, I think, easy for uh, the White House team to say, uh, like, we can clearly draw these linkages. And then in my own, my own background, having been a banker and a CFO, with the implosion of the financial markets, um, that was an area that, that supported my ability to operate there. I will never forget, though, uh, I actually had to be interviewed by the president in the Oval Office. It was really one of the most memorable experiences of my life. And uh, the president said to me, why would you want to serve in the middle of this disaster, why would you want to do this? And I said, well, you know, sir, you know, a lot of people thought I was crazy when I took the SBA job. And he said, well, you were. <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed. <clears throat> and I said, um, but this is why we come. This is why we serve. Like, that, this, like, this is why I'm here. I'm here because I want to be in a place that matters. I want to be able to bring all the gifts and experiences and, and competencies that I've built over my life in a way that, that, um, that matters for, for people. And um, it was that conversation with him had nothing. He didn't ask me anything about my skills or my background. He's like, he figured the team had figured that out. He wanted to know who I was at my core. It was there that he and I engaged on why we were here, why I was here. And it was there, I think, that he built, um, you know, uh, a level of trust in me as his potential appointee. And then he said, well, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. And somehow I got onto the story of where I met Molly and how we'd started at Redeemer Presbyterian. And he said, you know, I think that was the preacher who preached the 9-11 sermon, and he called in one of his aides, and he said, yeah, that's who it was. And uh, I gave him a copy of The Reason for God. Tim had just published that book. It was, I think, his first bigger book. He'd done a couple of smaller ones years ago. And um, he and I uh, developed an understanding and sort of a relationship uh, in that place, which for me was extremely special. Because he was a person who, you know, President Bush is a very forceful guy, you know, very adherent to principles and what he believed. And it was during that period of time he really, I think, grappled with his purpose in the world and how that connected to his faith. Now, you know, he wouldn't, you know, uh, he wouldn't have expressed that to me, but as a, uh, a member of his cabinet and somebody who got to know him during that period of time, that would have been, that was sort of my observation. I want to come back to that um, a little bit later. Um, you served on the TARP board, which uh, was a five-person board that was right at the center of putting the pieces back together. Yeah. So during that period of time, uh, Congress had passed legislation that appropriated $750 billion to um, support financial institutions that were in trouble effectively. And originally, the intent was to buy troubled assets, you know, namely mortgages, from institutions that were burdened with uh, these these assets that were hard to get rid of and that uh, was – uh, would potentially bring down their, the, the you know kind of their financial stability. As the inst as 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 the the crisis began to mushroom, it became clear 
then I think specifically clear to the Secretary of Treasury of Treasury and the, and the and the Fed Chair that those institutions really needed direct equity injections to survive. And so I was part of a five person board. It was really Hank Paulson and Ben Bernanke, the Treasury Secretary and the and the, and the Fed Chair, who were really the anchors uh, of that body. And then there were three of us who were on that body to represent certain other realms. My job was to represent homeowners uh, and the need to keep the mortgage market strong. What ended up happening is is as that crisis really began to mushroom, uh, it was almost a daily cycle of institutions getting into a very risky zone and institutions coming to the federal government for capital and a significant amount of capital. Uh, I'll never forget the day uh, uh, when when the Secretary of Treasury announced to the group that Citibank had come was coming for capital. And as a former banker um, and a former CFO, the, 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 it was that was an unthinkable, an unthinkable premise, right? And uh, you know, frankly, I was just so thankful that we had the leadership in place uh, through both the Treasury Secretary and the Fed Chair to understand the issues as deeply as they did, to be able to react as as expeditiously and forcefully as they did. And I believe, you know, uh, that was a time when all of us uh, in Washington locked our arms to save the world financial system. And it was a time when Democrats and Republicans worked together. It wasn't always uh, uh, wasn't always completely kumbaya, but really people came together to meet a need uh, urgently uh, and effectively. Was that uh, the most pressure-filled experience you had in Washington? Was the TARP or was there something else that, that, that actually ranks higher? It's hard to imagine something that was more pressure-filled having experienced that time. That was, without a question, the most powerful crisis point. Uh, because, once again, given my own background, it wasn't hard for me to think about the reverberations that could happen to take down the system. I mean, I had seen major financial institutions implode. And that can happen very quickly, especially for financial institutions who uh, fund themselves in the overnight market. And in many of these institutions, you know, their integrity every day was, was inextricably linked to their, to their survival. I would, however, say, I don't know, this may this is a different kind of pressure, but touring the Gulf and meeting with families um, who had lost husbands and lost children and lost all of their wherewithal, and wondering how in the world <laughs> we could still not be able to give them the support they needed to get their lives back. For me, on a deep emotional level, that was a place where human need you know, presented itself in a very powerful way and, and made it clear that I needed to be on my game every day uh, in that role. And so, you know, the, 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 the financial crisis was powerful and it was macro, but I think I saw the humanity of need much more, um, much more rawly uh, in uh, following Hurricane Katrina. So in 2009, um, after your service on the president's cabinet, you Returned to the private sector yeah. for about 10 years and then uh, in a number of senior level positions. Um, and then you, um, in 2019, you transition from business to the nonprofit sector. Um, this is when you take over leadership at Goodwill. That's right. Uh, Industries International. What inspired this change? Well, as you mentioned, I went back to the private sector after government. I'd looked at a couple of other things and for a lot of reasons, um, I went back into corporate leadership, one of which was my family needed to be in a more normalized situation. When we were in Washington, uh, so much you know, of their world was my world, uh, and I needed my kids to be the 
you know, the kids who jumped on the school bus on the corner and, you know, ran over to the soccer field and, uh, uh, and the kids where, you know, uh, their dad wasn't in the press and all the kids at school didn't know who he was. Right. Uh, and so that was a really important period for the family to kind of renormalize uh, after that because the roles were so public. After that period of time, I, I had an opportunity to run two different companies. And once again, uh, I just felt uh, an incredibly strong desire to, again, you know, use what I'd built over the years and focus them entirely uh, on something that was um, very focused on a particular mission. And and it was the mission of helping adults with challenges in life get back on track and have a di- and and and, and um, invest in a different kind of future. As a single guy in New York, as I mentioned, you know, I used to spend my weekends with kids in the inner city, mentoring them, tutoring them. Uh, eventually, actually, I took a, a teenager in to live with me for a number of years, and I was really kind of committed to, to working with those kids to help them see what was possible. And so many of them went on to do great things. But when I moved to Washington. Uh, and I had the role in HUD, which is very much of an agency that focuses on poverty issues, I realized much more profoundly what happened to those kids when their path didn't go in the right direction, maybe when they made poor choices. And often poor choices are compounding uh, when they didn't find access to opportunity. In my uh, volunteer life, uh, I became increasingly committed to organizations that helped adults. So I actually wrote a personal mission statement for myself, and it was about leading an organization uh, that helped, I think I called, uh, uh, you know, I I used the words difficult to employ people, which was, uh, you know, uh, a little bit flat-footed perhaps, but people with various life challenges find a different path forward in life, uh, a path forward for flourishing for themselves, for their families, and for their communities. And uh, I invested myself in figuring out what that could look like. And ironically, or providentially, depending on how you think, about a year and a half later, I got a call from Good from Goodwill, from an executive recruiter, uh, and that's what Goodwill does. You know, we've been around for 120 years. People know us for our stores, but we're the largest nonprofit provider of job training and job placement and job support services in North America. Uh, 120 years ago, our founder uh, was a, a Methodist minister in Boston, and he started collecting clothing for poor people because they needed clothes. And he, he thought to himself that if he could uh, mend these clothes and clean them and press them and resell them, that would create a business. So rather than giving people clothing uh, as a charity, he employed them to refurbish that clothing to sell as a business and thereby giving them a sustainable pathway through employment. And, uh, you know, one of his best-known quotes was that we should be dissatisfied until every person in our society has an opportunity to reach uh, their fullest potential as human beings. That's what we devote ourselves to. And we think employment is special, right? Uh, uh, Work is special to human beings. Obviously, um, being able to support yourself and your family is is essential, uh, an essential part of work. But I think work brings... um, gives us a community in which we operate. It gives us a place to invest our talent, our talents and our gifts. Uh, in, work we, in work, we often find pathways for growth and development and a different kind of future. And I think ultimately, work for us is an essential factor in human flourishing. And that's why I believe so strongly that the work we do is so important to people. 
uh, because it helps people on that path to human flourishing. And that's what I want. I want to flourish in life. That's what most people want. And I believe that uh, we should do everything we, we can to help those around us find that pathway to flourishing. What has Goodwill taught you about the dignity of work? Yeah, and that's, that's sort of a complicated, that's a complicated phrase because certainly where I sit, I believe everyone is born with inherent dignity as a human being, and I believe that we're all created in the image of God. But I don't think as a society, we ascribe dignity to everyone. And I believe that many people in our society don't feel that sense of dignity because of their lot in life, where they've been, challenges they've, they've, they've faced. And that meaningful employment uh, in this this place to uh, you know kind of attach uh, uh, in, in in all the ways that I mentioned can be a really essential part of helping people regain that sense of dignity uh, that many people have never felt before because of where they've been in life and so uh, I think dignity is a big part of it once again I think we're all uh, we all are deserving uh, of dignity we all have inherent dignity as human beings. Um, but many of us don't don't experience that every day. Yeah. I want to understand more the work that Goodwill does. Um, it's one of those institutions that touches up probably, you know, so many tens of millions of Americans, you know, in, in the sense that they, you know, if you drive by the retail uh, outlets, maybe you go, you donate. Thank you. If, you. if you donate, thank you for donating. If you shop, thank you for shopping. And all these kinds of things, but it's so much more than the retail outlets. So I wonder if you could uh, walk through a a particular client. How might someone come to you um, for assistance in workforce development, gaining skills and um, opportunity? And how do the retail outlets support those initiatives? So let me start with the first question. I just have to say, you know, we are uh, the way Goodwill is organized is we're 155. Uh, autonomous organizations across North America. They're all called Goodwill, but they have their own territories. They're all independent 501c3s, and they're part of a federation. That's important because uh, we we do see variability across those organizations in terms of how they advance that mission. And many times, you know, uh, it's very much uh, in tuned with the lead needs in that local community. Um, so it's not a really a one size fits all. But in in probably the most um, general expression of that, uh, somebody would come to one of our workforce development centers. Uh, they would probably meet with a career counselor or a, a career navigator. And and they would basically come to us and say, this is like, this is where I am. This is where I hope to go in life, you know. And we would do an assessment. We would do assessment of their skill level. And we would do an assessment of where they are in life. Because many times when people come to us in those situations, they come with other challenges, Right. They may have housing insecurity. They may not have the financial skills to uh, to run their own personal finances. They may have other challenges. So we work with we work to understand based on assessments of what their real needs are, what their aspirations are, and then how to build a plan to reach that aspirations and to work with them very realistically on how to achieve that. So based on that, you might enter a digital skills program, uh, for example. Uh, and you may enter a digital skills program that works to achieve a certain level of proficiency for a certain kind of job, and we would work with you on the training side. Uh, uh, you would likely have a career coach who would work with you along the way, 
And then as you've gone through that work with you on actually placing you into a job that uses those skills uh, to help you achieve those objectives. Um, it is very important uh, for the, most of the people that come to us that they have a human that works with them through that journey. Um, you know, it, it's easy to be lulled into this sense that in this digital world with all of these great online classes that people can just pop online, get what they need and get a job. But the fact of the matter is, if somebody's gone through a life uh, where they've faced a number of challenges, where they've had limited access, where they haven't been around networks of people that, have, that they've seen move into these places, there's no reason to think that those people would know, would would sort of magically know how to, you know, what courses to take and where it could lead and have confidence that it would take them there. Um, I think it's it's very important for us to dignify the individual that's in front of us by being realistic about the support they need and provisioning them with that support to get their, to, uh, to achieve their goals. Um, and when we are at our best, we are assessing that need. We're working with them to uh, get the support they need across the spectrum of, 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 of need and then um, ultimately helping them find meaningful employment. How do you work in your role with all of the affiliate organizations across North America? Yeah, so uh, my role is multifaceted, but uh, at its core, we provide services to the local organizations to help them be most effective in doing what they do. Uh, so it would be, you know, we would we would provide them with, you know, training and educational support or consulting support to improve their retail operations, for example. We would uh, uh, work with them, uh, you know, through collaborations and other kind of training and development activities to be more effective in running their local workforce development operations. We would provide workforce development training uh, for uh, career navigators. So we provide um, educational support, data support, system support. We actually uh, raise funding for local organizations to um, uh, to run those programs. So it's sort of a multifaceted support structure. And uh, we work on national partnerships and, you know, we, we, we work hard to be sort of the national reflection of those 155 organizations. And we also work hard to bring the best practices and best thinking of that network together for the benefit of all of them. And by doing so, we can be more effective in delivering that mission. Uh, you'd asked about the retail stores, the retail stores. We've got 3,300 stores, about 120,000 employees. And those stores serve two purposes. Uh, number one, uh, much of our mission takes place in the stores. A lot of the people we hire are people that have had challenges in life. They come to us for for uh, for, for that job that they need. Uh, we work to train and develop, and many of them and develop them, and many of them stay with us throughout a career progression. That's that's very exciting to see. Some of them stay with us for a while and then get placed into other roles. The second thing about the stores is any. Um, uh, any additional funding that the stores generate over and above what they use to pay their employees and, the, and, and, and their bills, uh, that additional funding becomes available to fund workforce operations. So if the stores are – the more profitable the stores are, the more funding that is available to um, invest back into the job centers and help more people. I want to start to wrap up, but I am curious uh, about what you've learned um, – what we've explored what you've learned as a leader. I, I'm interested in what you've learned – about being a follower. We talk a lot about leadership, um, but there is, I think, something that we might refer to as followership. And how do you think about that? And do you think about that? Well, that's, that's, that's an interesting question. As a person of faith, I think of myself as a follower of Christ. 
that's that's how I think about followership, and and that's sort of the one whom I am called upon to follow. That is an incredibly liberating concept, uh, and it's liberating because, you know, uh, in life we face so many challenges, and in big leadership roles, uh, many of those challenges are amplified. I think we often find ourselves in places where we don't know where to go or where we're confused or where the problem just seems insurmountable. And as a follower, I know know where to go for instruction. I know where to go for peace. I know where to go for guidance. And I think increasingly uh, through the years as I found myself in in sort of larger, more challenging and and kind of stickier situations, I've realized more and more that I need to be – a follower uh, of the principles of my faith in all the spaces every day. And it's, and it's by having that attitude that I think I find the most strength, uh, the greatest confidence, uh, and the strongest conviction in, in who I am as a leader. Yeah, good. Thank you. Okay, I want to end with this. It's a bit of a speed round, and, I, and it, free association. I'm going to go through a list of things, and I'd love to just okay. hear your first response. All um, right, I'm ready, I think. All right, here we go. Um, <laughs> Don't overthink it. It's just it let it flow. Uh, favorite band from the 70s or 80s? I, I don't know. You too. Okay, good, good. And they're still going. Favorite college class? My favorite college class, interestingly, it would have been a statistics class on how to do research in social sciences. I love statistics. Yeah, good, good. Favorite city that you just enjoy to visit? I, uh, Munich. George W. Bush. At Free Association Words uh, Leader. Good, good. Senate confirmation hearings. Hand-to-hand combat. (laughs) Okay, that's good. (laughs) All right. The Oval Office. Reverence. What works in government? Caring about the issue and the people behind the issue. What doesn't work in government? Self-interest and thin rhetoric. What keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night is, well, it doesn't really keep me up at night, but what occupies that sort of pocket of thinking uh, is knowing that doing things very well can impact the lives of thousands, if not millions of people, and falling short, uh, could fall short of that goal. Yeah, yeah. Life inside the Beltway. Uh, Energizing. A leader you admire. Tim Keller. When I die, I want to be remembered for? Well, the long of what I don't want to be remembered for is probably longer. I think who I was uh, at the core of my heart. Yeah, good, good. And finally, your hope for the church is? To bring healing to our culture. Hmm. Wonderful answer. Steve, what a joy to have this conversation with you. Thank you for this time with with me and um, the time you've invested here in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, thank you. It's really been a pleasure. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.